T-minus 10. Welcome to Laser Focused. Together, we make the impossible possible. Now here's your host, Renette Youssef. Welcome to Laser Focused, a podcast that takes you on the journey of discovery with the leaders that are changing the world with new design and revolutionizing how we think of advanced manufacturing. I'm your host, Renette Youssef, CMO and brand disruptor at Velo3D. On the show today, we have the founder and president of Plasmos, Ali Bakshasara. Plasmos is a space mobility propulsion manufacturer startup with a goal of utilizing additive manufacturing to build spacecraft propulsion systems that combine elements of electric and chemical engines. Welcome, Ali. I feel like you're a fellow 3D family member. Everybody talks about you guys and what you're doing, so I'm quite excited to have you on the show today. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here too. I actually do feel the same that I'm part of Bello's family, bigger circle of the family, I would say. So the first question I have is that I noticed that you have quite the extensive background in aeronautics, Mm -hmm. but I was super impressed when I learned that you built and tested a jet engine at just 15 years old. (laughs) And the video is on YouTube, so we can see you and your (laughs) friends making making that um, test engine. But so how did you become interested in aeronautics, and especially at such a young age? Yeah, I actually say that was not the first engine I made. Actually, just oh, wow. six months before that, my face was burned because I tested the rocket engine and it didn't go well, as you can imagine, oh, wow. just by the, by the side of it. And then my parents were very angry, of course, at me. And they said, you can't do this at home. I said, all right. So six months later, I did that at the school. So they didn't specify that you can't really do this (laughs) at all. So I always loved looking at building engines. And it started really by by a silly feeling of I want to build something that flies fast. And Uh that started when I was really, really young. I was seeing people, richer kids typically playing with their RC aircraft. And I was like, I want one, but not dumb like this. I want something much faster and better than this. And I started looking at aircraft design, which was super, super complex, everything added. And I was like, the engine seems to be the most complex one to crack at first. So I started looking at designing engines and read some books. And I was like, I don't understand half of it. These are giant formulas I don't understand. And then I started really learning about engines and how they work. And I was fascinated by it. And that fact didn't change by uh, until today. That is insane, like that you were so young and so fascinated about trying to make something faster and then look at where it led you today. So I I love stories like that. But also, like you mentioned, like growing up, that you also, like I learned that you grew up in Iran and then you moved to Germany and then later in life into the US, right? So what was that travel like for you and how did it sort of shape who you are today and, and becoming an entrepreneur? I would say being an immigrant and an entrepreneur, and I'm sure I'm not the first one talking about this, there are a lot of similarities actually. And Germany and the U.S. are not the only two times I've immigrated. I've actually immigrated 11 times through different countries. Wow. Um, I've lived in Norway, Sweden, in, in France, in Spain. And I would say when you start a company, it's always the same. You And this is my second time. You start with a pen and paper. You maybe have a computer <laughs> and there's nothing really more to it. So last time I made a cybersecurity company and we won a pretty big government contract. It started from nothing. And when you immigrate, it's the same. 
you immigrate, you don't have a house, you don't have a bed. Uh, actually, when I came to the U.S., one of the things I was I was happy about, I was like, I have a bed after 18 months. I was so happy that I have a bed. And it was quite silly, but, you know, it's the same when you get your first office. This is a new home for us. So I would say it's the same process in many ways because you start from nothing and you build a company and maybe you sell it like I did. And then you start from scratch again. So immigrating from different countries for me was always like you don't have friends in a new country. You don't know people, especially if you want to pursue big dreams. Uh, you want a network. You have to build all of that from scratch every time again and again. Mm. I haven't immigrated 11 times, but I have immigrated three times. And I definitely relate to some of those things like building lives, building networks, building friendships, building a home. Exactly. I haven't actually started companies like you, but I, do, I can see how it relates and makes you more resilient, yeah. actually. So that yeah. is a really important lesson. Yeah. yeah. Early on, you were also a student liaison for the American Society of Mechanical Engineers. And you were even awarded the IGTI Outstanding Service Award. Talk a little bit about that and your experience and how did it sort of, again, shape where you are today? Yeah, that was actually a really amazing experience. So I joined mm. ASME when I was 17 and a half. And one of the first questions I had to ask them was that the requirement says you have to be 18. So I was kind of early and they said, yeah, you can be a member. Uh, so just a year and a half ago when I was turning 28, I got an email from them. You have been 10 years a member of ASME. I was like, well, really, that's, that's, that seems oh, wow. long. But anyway, I've, I actually benefited a lot from ASME. There was a lot of great mentorships that I, I had from there. And one year there was an application open that I haven't heard about it before. It was they were looking for a liaison on a committee. It was basically a committee, mostly very experienced and senior people in the industry. So you can imagine executive vice president of Siemens was there and people alike in that level. And obviously, those people don't really have that much time. So what I did at that time, I, I learned, first of all, I learned how to present in front of international society. That was my first time presenting anything international in English. And I presented a new plan. I said, you guys don't really have time, but you have a lot of experience and knowledge. And a lot of graduate or undergraduate younger students like me, they are really motivated. They want to learn, but they don't have resources. So why don't we bridge this gap? and bring the students to help out reviewing papers and you you help the students as students learn how to do that and typically students who are in ASME pursuing mentorship and things like that they go an academic or industrial path or sometimes government mm. which is exactly those type of people coming from government organizations in the US and others and everybody really liked that idea and we implemented that they were um I think uh, eight or nine students, if I remember correctly, that that year joined my group that I started to introduce. And I think many of them are still working as a liaison or associate member in that committee that is reviewing the standards for electric power committee of ASME. I didn't actually know that there would be an award for this. I didn't apply for anything. But Kathy, that was running the whole thing, she apparently nominated me for that. And I didn't know that until I got the award, somebody sent an email saying, hey, we want to send you an award. I was like, an award for what? And then I <laughs> realized that there is an award that I have been nominated for and I have won and they are going to send it over to Iran, which was the country I was living in at that time. Uh, but that's yeah, amazing. That's, the, <laughs> that's the story for that. Okay, so what about making the jump to researchers? So you, you, made, you did a stint 
or the German Aerospace Center as a researcher? Like, right. why did you feel like that was a, an important step to take and, and how did like shape what you're doing today? Yeah, so I mean, I started my career doing research just because of the fact I thought this is the next step. When I was in the university, I started an organization which was focused on doing research mm. on different parts of aeronautics. So that was building a rocket engine. It was a different kind of thing that I did at that time. But basically, I would say the career, for me, the career started with research. Then I started doing research and development. So I was taking another step after that to develop something that I have done research on. And then after that, I really learned that if you want to industrialize something, research and development is almost not relevant to it because there is so many steps that you have to take to industrialize something. And that's not quite mm -hmm. exactly as R&D, but R&D is a great fundament for what you probably would, would do afterwards. So I kind of went through these, these steps and then did a program management job at Airbus, which re I really learned what it really takes to take something that is an idea to hand of a customer and on time and quality and cost. And those things are all of them are sometimes elements that you don't really necessarily get to think about when you are doing a research and development project. You don't almost think about budget of it. You don't think what the stakeholders might think about when you are going to roll out a project that might involve 16 of them, especially in an environment like aviation, which is really regulated heavily. So I kind of learned through uh, different steps and just jumped from one to another. And at the end, I saw the importance of each of those elements as pillars to a successful mm -hmm. breakthrough, which is what I tried practically in my last company. And now in this company, I'm again doing the same thing. You mentioned that you're working at Airbus mm -hmm. and you're also um, doing research. So how do you make the transition to being a founder and entrepreneur at a startup and learning to move fast and break things fast and iterate fast? Like It's not inherent when you're working at a company no. like Airbus. Yeah, absolutely. So what was that transition like? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. It wasn't an easy transition. It was also not an easy decision. At the time, I was deciding to leave Airbus. I had a quite expensive lifestyle. I was living in the most expensive neighborhood of Hamburg. And, you know, I had my, my hobbies like flying and things like that. So a lot of bills were coming every month that I was like, Airbus pays for my, I didn't even really look at my bank account. I was like, I have certain hobbies, there's certain costs and there's certain income. And one of the difficulties I had was, okay, next month, nobody's going to pay for that. So how is like, how is that going to work? I'm going to make a company. Yes. Okay. That's fine. And uh, I think that transition took me, it was a long walk of about 12 hours that I was mm. just walking next to the river of Elbe in Hamburg and just back and forth. I think everybody in that neighborhood got to know me and think, who is this crazy man just walking around? And I was like, Airbus is great. I really like what I've done here, I've, how I grown up through the hierarchy now I want to do a transition to something that is completely unknown. I don't know if I will succeed. I have no backbone of a family or financial backbone or not that much of a financial backbone to support myself for another year or two. And if I'm forced to go back to Iran, I have to go to the military again mm. because uh, I didn't do my military service when I left Iran, like many other people don't do. So I was like, this is, this is a lot of risk and it's overwhelming. Not only the typical things that you have to think about. Anyway, it was a decision that if I look back at it and say, 
what would have made it different. I think there is nothing that would have made it different. It's a it's a jump in in a cold water that you have to do and start learning swimming in the cold water and try to survive. And there is no other way. You can't just go slowly in the water that is cold and start learning swimming. So Ali, what was it about the moment you decided that Airbus wasn't enough for you anymore Mm -hmm. and that, you know, you're ready to give up the lifestyle you just described to start something? Like, What was that moment? Like, was there one moment or was it just like building and building and building and then you're like, okay, I'm walking this river 12 hours until I make a decision? (laughs) (laughs) There was definitely a moment to it, but there was also a process behind it. So there was a process Mm -hmm. that I was starting to think. There was two co-founders that at the time, or mainly one, that he was like, telling me we should definitely start this company. He wasn't coming in full-time. I was going in full-time. But essentially, you know, that, again, I would compare it to the the jumping in the cold water. You put your toes in the water and you're like, this is cold. So that's something Mm -hmm. you know. And when you think about nobody's going to pay the bills, that's exactly how it feels. And then you have to hire people because you're not going to survive doing something by, by yourself completely. So then you have to think about especially in a country like Germany, that if you hire people, you can't really easily let them go like in the U.S. So there is a lot of regulatory hurdle Mm. that you have to go through. And I think that moment is is nothing really different than jumping in the cold water and it's it, it hurts. So you get in there, you are like in the first few weeks, you are like, yes, I'm really doing good. I'm learning these things. I set up a company. Now I'm a CEO. And then there is a week after that, that you realize what it actually means. And you're like, oh, shoot, that's a lot of responsibility. And then maybe you get calls from potential customers and you're like, yes, I'm doing great again. And then you feel great about it. And then the week after the customer doesn't answer your calls and you're like, oh, shoot, what are we doing now? I had one CEO and founder tell me that it's like being on a roller coaster. He starts the week yep. very exactly. um, stressed. Because he looks at what he has ahead of him. Yep. And, and and then like it's this, you know, peak. And then by Friday, he's like at the happiest because he's seen <laughs> what he's been able to achieve for the last week. But then Monday comes back and it's that, you know, like that anxiety. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Okay, back to the topic, right? So you went from Airbus mm-hmm. and you started Lisa Deutschland. Right. Then you left that company or you sold that company. Yeah. Your mm-hmm. own, you sold it. I sold it. Right? And company, then you yeah. started, yeah, amazing. Right. Yeah. I don't even. How long were you? How long had that company been around? So that company until today has been around for about two and a half years. It's been oh, about wow. uh, six or seven months that I'm no longer with them. They are still doing good, as far as I know. I was just texting with the CEO yesterday evening. <laughs> He's doing amazing. I actually really tried hard to to do a deal that really takes care of the employees, even if there were not so many of them, because we were not really mm. funded to do a product. We started getting our first and second client and uh, we started hiring people and then we got a government contract. And essentially mm. that whole route was for me that what was the value of the company was the idea, the vision, the people and the contracts that was in the company. So exiting from that company with the terms I was setting for the CEO that I want to exit immediately because of compliance reasons that it was a government contractor in Germany. I really was looking at a deal that somebody who is coming as a CEO and as a new owner would really care about the employees and the structure I had been building. 
and they haven't really shifted the vision a bit. They haven't shifted those people who I have hired or have told the new CEO to hire after I go. All of them are involved in the company. They go to shows. They, they are having fun as far as I see the pictures. And I'm really happy for them to see that Excellent. it's like a little baby that is growing slowly and nice in its teenage time. And you don't necessarily get to spend that much time with them, but then they, they have their own life. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's talk about Plasmos. So you're founder and president. Yeah. And you're trying to rewrite the book of propulsion. So you're combining right. the thrust of legacy chemical rockets right. with new age electronic propulsion systems. Right. So tell us a little bit about the design and the characteristics of your engine. Mm-hmm. And, and just correct me if I'm wrong, it's called CLEPS X100. Right. Right. Okay. Right. So essentially CLEPS was a term that I came up with, but before that, I had this idea a little bit in 2014. I talked a little bit about it when I wrote or co-authored the book with Danny Johns on electric, mm. uh, electric space. And I looked at different propulsion systems and I really looked at them and I said, these are not good. And there was only one uh, design that it seemed really good to me. And it was a design from Mr. Franklin and his team at Astra. And I was hoping that they'll get that working by the time I'll go back to propulsion because I had a break from propulsion and errors or a space went to aviation when I was in Germany, you know, trying to survive and do a new life in, in Germany. So I, I had that moment where I looked at in 2019, where I was end of 2019-20, where I was preparing for my new citizenship, for thinking about if I would want to move to a new country and the citizenship didn't work that fast, typical German red tape. But I got my American green card and I said, what do I want to do next that is different from what I have done so far? And that was when I looked at propulsion again. And I said, you know, mm-hmm. I would definitely want to browse that book and see what I had for ideas. So I opened this old notebook and I had this idea, chemical propulsion is good, electric propulsion is also good but they are different goods. So how can we combine these two things? And that was a question that was left. And I picked that question and went to a bunch of people that I had gotten to know or looked in LinkedIn and said, who has worked on chemical propulsion and now works on electric propulsion. And I came across a gentleman, Alan De Meyer, which was head of propulsion when they built the first electric propulsions at, at Airbus, which was at the time called EADS. And I said, Hey, I've got this idea. I know I don't know you. You don't know me, but this is my background. This is the idea I have. Am I crazy or am I too crazy? He said, you're (laughs) definitely crazy, but there is some merit about thinking about this idea. And we actually have tried something around these lines in 1996. I said, well, that time I was three years old. So then we started having conversations more and more. Then I started putting a concept together. I said, let's try and see where, where it goes. So I put some pen and paper and did some doodling on that, gave it to some freelancers, made a more prettier design. Then I started talking to more people and nobody told me there is a reason you shouldn't try it. And I got a good traction of uh, getting people like Michael Kaidar, which is president of Electric Propulsion Society in the United States. And early on, I had a job opening on LinkedIn and nobody really knew about AB360 space, which is now Plasmos. And he applied and I was looking at his profile. I was like, this guy really knows everything about electric propulsion. So there is no reason for him to come here. 
So I picked the phone, called him. I said, this is the idea. Why, why, why? I said, this is interesting. This is, this is something that somebody should think about. Then, uh, then I said, so do you want to help me out? He said, absolutely. And wow. uh, that's a year and a half ago. And we have been working on designing the first iterations of the engine. Now we have tested the chemical part of the engine. Actually, yesterday on a high pressure, it was successful. We are going to add the last piece of the engine and test it again next week, in the next two weeks. And then we are going to redesign the electric propulsion and the, the parts we know it doesn't work. That's also running. So hopefully by end of August, we have a, a more or less solid design for the next iteration of our engine. And hopefully we get to testing of that early September. So um, I think we came a long way to really think about how do we add the efficiency element and characteristics of electric propulsion with the trust levels, not really that high trust levels, but higher than electric propulsion by almost thousand times so that mm -hmm. you can move a giant satellite in a space if you need maneuverability demands that you have to address in a short time period, electric propulsion is just not enough. And so we are looking at addressing different problems with this engine, but also addressing other problems that are lying in front of us as a as a business case, like last mile delivery with a reusable mm. space truck. Yeah, okay. Can you talk a bit about that? Like, so you have another product called Tugboat? <laughs> we have actually, <laughs> when we looked at this actually happened because when we started to become propulsion company, one of the things you look at at the, at the business case was to talk to customers. And when I talk to customers, I noticed their tendencies when they think about integrating this system in their satellites. And I also really realized that the real, a really big problem is sitting there without immediate solutions, which is the last mile delivery. And that's really that because SpaceX addresses really massive access to space, massive in terms of payload and really cheap, there is nobody that can, you know, you, you can go to the same orbit again and again, which is the SSO, and you can't really go to a specific orbit, which the demand of it is getting higher and higher just because the trend to launch satellites has been increasing almost by a thousand times in the last three years. So when you look at that, you're like, this is going to grow three times more and the writers are very popular and everybody is looking at it, but they can't go to Equatorial. They can't go to higher LEO. They can't go to specific orbits when they want to, and they have to use their propulsion on board to get there. And then by the time they are there, they don't have any maneuverability and flexibility anymore. So when I looked at that problem, and I was speaking with John Rising, which is one of my advisors, and he worked at the SpaceX and Relativities before, and I really understood that the problem that we are trying to address with the propulsion system, there is another element of it that there is a more immediate need. So I went back and forth on, okay, there is Impulse Space and other companies that are working on bringing a solution. And then I said, if I want to do this, I don't want to do the same thing that other people are doing. So I want to think about how we can really reduce the cost for uh, getting to final orbit. And that's the moment I just was talking to an investor and he said, make it reusable. I said, what do you mean make it reusable? It's just not like a mobile phone that you make it reusable. We are talking about the spacecraft almost a thousand kilometer away from, from the earth. And we were having a friendly chat and I was like, this is, this is not fair. What is this investor talking about? Then I went home and thought about that. I was like, 
But there is merit in thinking about it. So there was for two weeks, I was just thinking reusable is interesting, but what does it mean? I don't know. And then there was a moment where I thought, hey, there has been things coming back to the earth. This basic sense stuff and dragon came back to the earth. So maybe we can figure something out on that. And right now we actually checked with your application engineering team, I think last week, I believe or so, the first design of that spacecraft, which is hopefully will be 3D printed fully, that is going to come back to the earth in a way that doesn't have heat shields. It's a cooled spacecraft. So we are cooling the temperature and reducing the speed before re-entry. And if that works, we can reduce the cost of first deliver the service potentially by 2025 to clients that want to go to custom orbits and hopefully down the line also bring our spacecraft back. And this became more or less another team and unit that Plasmus is working quite aggressively on. What I love about that story is that you actually kept an open mind. You just didn't yeah. think well, this investor, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah. But also that 3D printing is helping you realize yep. your innovation and your yep. idea. Absolutely. So, that's, so, so on that, right? So you, it's obviously very exciting what you're doing and I can right. see so much passion from the conversation. So how does 3D printing or additive manufacturing mm -hmm. play a role in building your engine? So you just touched on this rocket that returns or this engine that returns, but what other things are you doing? at Plasmos that, you, that you know, additive manufacturing is helping you achieve your goals or realize your goals? I actually want to start on the end of the line. So when you think about mm. a new design, when you think about a new new engine, and I can actually walk through the, the process of what we had to go through for the engine we designed initially and a couple of challenges we, we couldn't think about solving. Number one, the, this engine is going to be extremely hot in one single point of it. So imagine it's, it will be as hot as three people with three different welding machines sit next to each other and point on the same, same spot and start welding there. That's how hot that single point gets. And mm -hmm. th this is not like other rocket engines. Other rocket engines, there is heat all over the place. So you can have a symmetric cooling system all over that. So when we started thinking about the cooling and I looked at how other rocket engines have been, you know, use, use a cooling mechanism, I was like, there's no way we can use the same thing for this particular case. So we have to, we had to come up with a creative solution that there will be different pipes going at that point to cool that point down, but also there should be another set of pipe that cools the rest of the engine because that will also get hot. And so when we came up with a design, I was talking to one of our engineers and I said, so how do you think we should manufacture this? I said, I don't know, but come up with some way. I mean, I've designed it, so you <laughs> should come up with a way to manufacture it. And I've been looking for 3D printing companies for a long time. So I've had conversations with many of uh, Velo competitors before I met the team of Velo. And then one day I reached out to one of the sales managers and I said, hey, can we have a conversation? I have potentially some applications. And that led to some really interesting conversations. And I said, these are the challenges. And it was, I think, the third or fourth day that I got to the U.S. Uh, that I visited Velo's headquarters. I said, I want to see what you are doing. So Luis actually invited me over and I, I visited the facility. At that time, I didn't have a car, so he had to pick me up from the <laughs> station. And we went to Velo's headquarters and I saw that this is exactly what we need. And so by the time we were ready for the design, then I had a short conversation with Benny 
And he said, well, how can I help? And I said, well, if you can make an uh, in-kind investment for us to get to the next place that we have an engine, that would be great. And that first step led us to think about that this is an available tool to us for us to use. And when we started to think about a reusable spacecraft, which is a slightly different project that we are working on, but within the same company, one of the challenges of a reusable spacecraft, as you may know, is a reusable the reusability aspect of it, which means the heat shield is the one that you can't really reuse because by the time it's back to the earth, it's almost fully destroyed. So you have to completely repair that. And that doesn't really mean reusability. So I said, I don't want to have any heat shields that is not ablative and it's not going to have the same problems. And we thought, well, why don't we cool the spacecraft down? So for reentry, we don't have that set of problems. And we started designing it. We are still analyzing or design, but we have a first design that we may we may finish actually tonight or tomorrow. Actually, the engineers are working right now on uh, to do some final analysis on the heat that we can capture. And if we can get mm-hmm. that done, it became, long story short, it became part of the thought process that there's a tool that is available to us and we can make a shape that is really strange and in- integrate the tanks of it inside the spacecraft and just have it printed. That's what I love about this story, actually, that your engineer, design engineer, designed something yeah. without thinking about how it was going to be made. That said, right. this is how we're going to get it. Like, this is what right. we want. And then right. there was a solution. You didn't have to redesign the product to yep. get it printed. Yep. Yep, exactly. And and I think that's also why there is an interesting energy developing between Velo and Plasmos, because we know that we can manufacture there and the need for that is becoming more and more. So the first thing I thought about yesterday when I, w- I visited our first office in San Bernardino, I was like, how do we get a Velo 3D printer here? Where do we put that? <laughs> That's awesome. But you did, you did also have another successful day, another successful event yesterday, not just seeing your potential new office. You said you also had an experiment that was successful. Yeah. What was that? Can you talk a little bit about that, if you can, on air? <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, we, we tested on a higher pressure. So we have had on this engine that we printed six cycles of testing, which two of them were not successful. Four of them were, were cold testing. So last time, yesterday was the first time we really had a real hot fire testing. And I actually... I can actually show you the short recording of this movie that we tested. And I was not sure if this is going to work by the time I was pressing the button. So a lot of things was going through my mind when I was pressing the button. And we had a small audience group that was there. Everybody was excited to see a rocket engine fire up and hear the noise. The gas was running in and I was hiding behind the bunker and I was just like, I don't know what the result will be. This is 3D printed. It's a cool technology. We have played with this engine, but I don't know if this is going to work. And this is our first hot fire test. And I pressed the button and it worked absolutely seamless. There was no, we ran it for 25 seconds. And I was for first three or four seconds, not sure if it just didn't turn on. I mean, of course, the noise was so high that I was like, did it just really turn on? But I couldn't really believe that it's running so seamless because there was the noise, there was there was some dust starting to take off. And I was like, I just can't believe it. 
and I was like, okay, is it safe for me to go out of it? I was just like starting to go out of the door and come back. And then we just stayed in the safe area for 20 seconds. I pulled it in the, the pressure gauges down and then we looked at the movie and I was like, holy shit, this is incredible. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, Good for you. That's amazing. You. <laughs> yeah. No, that's really amazing. You need those wins, right? To feel like you're moving yeah. forward. Oh yeah. We, this was definitely interesting. So looking ahead, what do you think will be the difference between companies that ultimately succeed in this industry and those who fail? I could have a lot of answers to this question, <laughs> but uh, in a nutshell, I would say we are at the at a very interesting point of time where in some ways it could be related to five, six, seven years ago in cryptocurrency, where although cryptocurrency is software-based, there is no hardware attached to it, but many investors that do invest in the space industry today are former crypto investors. And I think there is an interesting relation to that. And the relation to that is that this is one next big thing. I wouldn't say that which companies will be the, the winners of this race, but the difference with this race and crypto is that everything will take longer because it's a hardware company. You know, you have to build hardware in order to, to get to space. But just imagine looking at James Webb telescope pictures that we get these are pictures that I think in our lifetime, in mine and yours, will not only be pictures anymore, will be places that you go to and take pictures, mm. possibly. And when you think about that, this is, this is a game changer for tourism uh, industry, for, for so many different things to come yet that personally I cannot think about. From asteroid mining, going to Mars and Moon, just the commercial aspect of delivering satellites in a space in different orbits, mobility in a space, which is, you know, the quote unquote, the tagline for our company, but really focusing on the commercial aspect of it. I think there's going to be a lot of up and downs, probably a big one coming up in front of us, but the future of the space industry is going to be one of the markets that is the limits of it hasn't been yet set. One of the challenges I see when I talk to the people from the industry and I talk to venture capitalists, I see the vision that VCs have for the for the space industry is absolutely not realistic in many cases. Mm. And I see the problems that the space industry is facing today with is going to be solved really quickly with matter of years with solutions that they never imagined. So I think there is that giant gap that is in between that is going to be filled with companies that really come up with creative technological solutions. But at the same time, they have to maintain, and this is going to be the challenge, they have to maintain having some sort of revenue, some sort of profit pot potentially, in order to really attract and build commercial and financial value. And I think we are in that, we are in that gap where people may think something will be true and is needed in the industry, but it isn't. So that's mm. the danger of it. But also there is the opportunity that you can build between that bridge that is so big and bridge those visions to the real industry problems, which is what I'm trying to stay focused on to really solve problems that are problems of the industry today and will be for the next 10 years. And how can we address those so that we can get to, to dollar amounts so that mm -hmm. the company will be 
valuable also financially, not just because we do something cool to go to a space. So I think there is those three parameters. I hope I, I could kind of capture a little bit of the answer. That was really interesting. I'd never knew or realized there was such a connection between crypto and space industry and investors. Yep. So that was really insightful. But I also really appreciate the focus that you have. Like, you know what your focus and goals are. Yep. And that's what you focus on to grow. Um, yep. So I have one final question, Ali. Please. What do your parents think of you now still <laughs> working with Rocket? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> I think they were nervous when I told them two, three days ago that there is something coming up again. I can't talk to them so so transparent, unfortunately, just because of the rules. So they somehow know what I'm doing, but they don't really mm. know, which is interesting and sometimes hard. But I have been doing this I think they have definitely given up to tell me don't do this anymore because they have told me for, yeah. I think, more than 15 years and it didn't really change anything. So uh, I think they have given up and sitting and watching where this journey takes me. <laughs> but they definitely recommend heavy safety assessments uh, before I do something. So that's what I would say they, they try to tell me. I really appreciate your time and we'll definitely be watching your journey. So this is a really cool story and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for a great question. Of course. Thanks, Ali. I want to say a huge thanks to Ali for being on the show. It was so great speaking with him and exploring the latest developments in spacecraft propulsion systems and utilizing additive manufacturing to reach the stars. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us and leave a review or share the show with a friend. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please do now so that you never miss an episode. I'm your host, Renette Youssef, and this has been Laser Focused, where together we innovate without compromise.